Isaiah 1, 1 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would speak through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, and we are going to see how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. Heather just read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Because that chapter of scripture describes the people and the place where John was to minister as he prepared the way for Jesus. They were religious, but they did not love God. God said he hated their sacrifices and offerings and said even though they would make many prayers that he would not listen. 
Why? Because they would not deal with the sins that were in their hearts. They wanted to say a prayer and make an offering and then go back to committing the same old sins again and again. But towards the end of Isaiah chapter 1, there is that beautiful promise from God where he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And God is offering forgiveness to people he has just described in the most awful way. Isaiah is the prophet who said that John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so this morning, we're going to see how calling people to repentance prepares them to meet Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, if you haven't turned there already. And as you turn there, before we read this, let me say something about our culture. So I said just a word based on the prophet Isaiah about the people that John was going to be preaching to. Let me say a word about the people that I am preaching to, the people that you are talking to, and the culture in which we live. Because John the Baptist, to us, I think seems very abrasive. Dale Carnegie published How to Win Friends and Influence People in 1936. It has probably been one of the most influential books. Certainly, it is the book that started the self-help industry. And honestly, if you've ever looked at it, he has some things to say that, that are not bad advice. A lot of it boils down to, don't be a selfish person, be sincere. But although, to be honest, I've always actually thought of his book as more of a joke, although he didn't intend it that way, that of anything that I would go to for serious advice. You know, you know, you bring it up sarcastically when someone has been a real jerk. You say, oh, that's a great way to win friends and influence people. The irony is, if you are really a selfless person, and if you are really sincere, you probably won't want to influence people, at least not in a way that's somewhat subversive. We think of, of people who are trying to sell us something or, or, or persuade us to vote a certain way as looking to Carnegie for advice. So we're very used to used car salesmen and politicians smiling a lot. And there's a sort of superficial humility. And one of the things that Carnegie said that I think actually has influenced our culture a lot is he is very clear that you should never criticize, condemn, or complain to another person. Because even if your criticism or your complaint is legitimate, people do not like to admit they are at fault. And so if you offer a criticism, you will alienate the person that you have criticized, and they probably will not change. So you will have zero influence because you have offered a criticism. In one sense, Carnegie is absolutely right. No one likes to be criticized. So Carnegie says, just don't do it. And I think we actually have learned from that as a culture, and he's not the only source, but as a culture, we are very hesitant to openly speak anything that is critical of another person. 
we can be so afraid of offending people that we are no longer honest face to face. And more often than not, it's not that we lie to one another, it's just that we fail to speak the truth. We leave true things unsaid if we fear the reaction that someone else will have because we've spoken them. It's like seeing a broken bone in another person. And because we don't want to cause the pain of setting it, we leave it broken and let it heal in a broken way so that the person is never well. Here's why this culture of avoiding criticism is deadly important. And what I believe we need to learn from John the Baptist today, and one of the things that we need to appreciate about Jesus, if you and I never talk about sin, we will never be prepared to meet Jesus. If someone, if you're a believer today, had not looked you in the eye and said, you are a sinner and you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You need to obey him. You need to be baptized. You need to follow in obedience. If someone had never addressed your sin, you would be lost. Paul says, how can they believe unless they have heard and how can they hear unless someone tells them? That means for us, if we are hesitant to tell other people that their sin cuts them off from God, we are going to leave them in great danger. You will leave your loved ones in danger of hell, a danger that you know is real, but they may not understand. That's why John the Baptist is so enormously helpful. He has never read how to win friends and influence people. He is very blunt. And we need to hear what he says so that we are ready to meet Jesus. And we need to speak the way he speaks so that we can help others prepare to meet Jesus. So first of all, let's look at the first 10 verses of chapter 3 and read about a baptism of repentance. Look with me at verse 1 of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? There is a prophetic introduction to John's ministry as Luke quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He makes it clear that, as the angel announced in chapter 1, that John has a unique ministry to prepare people for the Messiah. And, and Luke makes it very clear in the way that he quotes Isaiah that this leads to people seeing salvation. And I believe the implication is this. Unless someone confronts you about sin, you will never be able to see who Jesus is. You'll never see your need for Jesus, and you'll never place faith in him. So before Jesus begins his ministry, God sends a prophet to confront the nation of Israel and to give them an opportunity to repent so that when Jesus steps out onto the stage and begins his preaching ministry, there are some who have already dealt with their sins. John's message is crystal clear. You can't miss it. He doesn't beat around the bush He calls a spade a spade. He makes it very clear to the people who are coming to hear him that they are in danger because of their sins. And not only do they need to repent, but they need to change the way that they live to demonstrate that their repentance is genuine. You see, there's a kind of repentance that says, I'm so sorry, and it never changes. You may be in a marriage where you've experienced that. You may have gone through a divorce because a spouse was able to say sorry a million times but never changed. And many of us treat God in the same way where we'll say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But there's no life change to back up that repentance. And so John is saying very clearly, do not go through the motions. Do not just say, I'm sorry, Lord. But change your life. Let your life back up what you claim to believe. Your life depends on genuine repentance. John warns people to flee the wrath that is to come. He makes it so clear that they will be destroyed because of their sins if they do not repent. And yet, here's the key. He is offering forgiveness. He is offering peace. His message is not one of hopelessness. His message is one that is profoundly hopeful. John proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This repentance is doing what Isaiah said was necessary to prepare the way for Jesus. And now I want to make this very clear. We talked just a moment about baptism, about Christian baptism, earlier in our service today. In Christian baptism, we're saying, Jesus died for me, his death paid for my sins, and now I live in Jesus, and I trust that he will raise me from the dead. 
It is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. John's baptism is a little bit different. When John is offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus has not even begun his public ministry. He certainly hasn't died and risen from the dead yet. So this is not the kind of baptism where someone places faith in Christ. This is a baptism of changing your life. It is showing a radical change and a new commitment. It shows that people are agreeing with what God has said about them in Isaiah chapter 1. So think for a second about that scripture reading, about the incredibly blunt things that the prophet Isaiah said about the children of Israel, about how they, they, their hands were covered in blood, and as they came to the temple for worship, they offered sacrifices and they prayed prayers, and God said, I am sick of your sacrifices, I want nothing to do with your prayers. And the indictment of the people of Israel is so heavy. And as people are going to John the Baptist, they might be thinking of Isaiah chapter 1, and they're not pointing fingers at other people. They're not saying, yeah, Israel's got a real problem. They're not saying, our country is deeply sick. They're saying, I have a real problem. I am deeply sick. And so when they go to John the Baptist... They are saying the problem with Israel starts with me, and I want to change. You might think that before Christ, this is a sort of confusing thing to do because of the sacrifices that you had to make in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament has always been very clear that God offers forgiveness to those who repent. Think again of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. God promises, he says that although your sins may be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Leviticus, where all the sacrifices are given in great detail, again and again emphasizes how sins can be forgiven. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of confession and repentance. And the psalmist says in Psalm 51, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And a broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. So the Old Testament has always been clear that God is full of mercy. Think of Moses. Think of what we just read about how God appeared to Moses And God says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Because they knew that God was like that, as people were going to John the Baptist and saying, I am the problem in Israel. Baptize me. I want to to be forgiven, and I want to walk in obedience to the commands of God. Because they knew that God was a merciful, forgiving God, they had confidence that they could be forgiven. And don't miss, all of this is in preparation to meet the Savior. John warns them, he says, don't assume because you're an Israelite that you're ready to meet the Messiah. Don't assume that you are right with God. Rather, repent. And bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And as they listened to John preach, and his preaching was deeply effective, many people went to him and were baptized. He described what a life of repentance would look like. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. John answered them, 
Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Luke records three different types of people who heard John's preaching and his instructions to them. And I believe from that, we can understand part of what it means for us to live lives of genuine repentance. But first, notice the diversity of the people who were coming to him. You know, if it's true that you should never criticize because people don't take criticism well, John had an enormously effective ministry, almost exclusively criticizing people, And not only was his ministry successful, it was successful with people who were alienated by religion. So you would not find a lot of soldiers or tax collectors going to temple to worship. There were a lot of people that would not associate with good religious people because they were viewed as sellouts. If you're a tax collector, it means you're working on behalf of the Roman Empire that is oppressing Israel. No one thinks of a tax collector as a good Jew. And if you're a soldier, it means that you're actually fighting for Rome. No one would have thought of a soldier as a good Jew. But John's preaching is reaching those that traditional religion was not. And he's making it clear that the forgiveness that he's offering is available to absolutely everyone. The refreshing truth that you can see in the types of people who were repenting and being baptized is that all of us are so bad, it doesn't matter what your particular sin is, you can be forgiven. Tax collectors and soldiers may have been sellouts to Rome they would have been seen as living in opposition to God because they were keeping God's people under Roman rule and yet they were finding their sins forgiven. And John begins to describe to them what genuine repentance looks like and much of it goes back to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus will later describe as, as the summary of the law but it's actually not unique to Jesus. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, God said to his people in the Old Testament that this is what's expected of you. That you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what you find John describing. You give clothing to people who don't have enough. You share food with people who don't have food. You work in an honest way. You don't try to cheat people. You have integrity. You don't steal. You live a life that genuinely shows your love for other people because you recognize that God has loved you and has offered you forgiveness. That's a life that's consistent with repentance. And you know, Christian, we have the same command offered to us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John wrote in the book of 1 John, No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And the examples that John gives are to love your brothers and sisters by feeding them, by clothing them, by doing good to other people. Those are works that demonstrate your repentance is genuine and sincere. Because of John's preaching, and because they're beginning to understand what it means to live a life of repentance, people start to wonder if John is actually the Christ. You know, the the Old Testament was leading to the Messiah, and there was a hunger and an expectation that, that the Messiah would come and save his people. And as people saw the movement that was taking place, as John is preaching out in the desert, and people are coming to him and being baptized, and not just a few people, but crowds of people are coming to him and being baptized, it's very natural that they begin to wonder, is John actually the Christ? And so you find, they they ask him that question, and what we find is that he is not the Christ, but instead, there will be a Savior For these penitent people. And so the first thing that we looked at this morning was a baptism of repentance. John's baptism for repentance. The second thing we looked at was a life consistent with repentance. And finally this morning we're going to look at a savior for the penitent. Look with me at verses 15 through 22 of Luke chapter 3. As people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John makes it very clear that he is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior, but instead his ministry of repentance leads the way to the one who will offer final salvation. John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In a future message, I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But it's an incredibly encouraging promise. You might think of Acts chapter 2, when the whole church receives the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we are able to live lives of obedience. No, not perfectly, but it's the Holy Spirit who continually leads Christians in repentance so that when you sin, you're not comfortable with it. And you are eager to repent because the Holy Spirit will not leave you alone until you do. And so the ministry that comes through Jesus 
is so much greater than the ministry of John the Baptist. You might also think for just a moment, the warnings that John issued might seem surprising. Because when John is saying that the Christ will come, he says so clearly, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The coming of the Messiah is not good news for everyone. If you are not able to repent, if you are not willing to say, I am a sinner and I need this salvation, the coming of the Messiah is destruction for you. John says it's an eternal destruction. And that might not seem the way we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus as the Savior, but not only is he the Savior, he is the coming judge. And so if you don't plead the mercy of God that's offered to you in Christ... If you don't come to God and say, I am a sinner, I need this forgiveness, the coming of Jesus will lead to your destruction. That's what John is preaching. He is saying, be ready now to meet the Messiah. The coming of Jesus is a great blessing if you repent. But the coming of Jesus is terrible judgment if you will not repent. Herod is the example of someone who does not repent. And he ultimately silences John. And I want to say to you today that we ought to point to Jesus in a similar way that John the Baptist does. And there will be both kinds of people that you will experience if you are able to talk to other people about sin. You will find some people who by the mercy of God repent and find forgiveness. And we ought to pray that we see more of that. You will find other people, like Herod, who become angry. And they might push you out of their lives. But that does not change your responsibility to speak the truth and to warn people that one day all of us will stand before Jesus. If there's a single message that I want you to remember from this sermon, it's this. Jesus saves us from God's wrath. But there is no other hope. Jesus saves us from God's wrath, but there is no other hope. In two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about the baptism of Jesus and what that means. He is described by the voice from heaven, by the Heavenly Father, as the Father's beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. That stands in stark contrast to the people who say, I'm a child of Abraham. God loves me because I am this. John says, no, don't assume that you're right with God because of the family you were born into. Repent and do deeds that keep with repentance, that are consistent with repentance. And finally, you look to Christ Jesus because Jesus is is the son that God is pleased with. Jesus is the one. John could not describe the cross of Jesus Christ. He did not fully know what the Messiah would do when he first came. But his message is good and it is true. And so you begin to see that we are saved ultimately by looking to Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you this morning. There are two things, very simply. Number one, If you think that you are a believer, but you have never repented of your sin, 
and you live consistently in sin, I believe this text would say to you, don't assume you're a Christian because you've been part of the church your whole life. I believe there's a very blunt message that says, if you continue in sin, when you see Jesus face to face, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And I want to encourage you this morning to look to Jesus as the only way that you can be saved. I want to encourage you to repent of your sins. And Christians, if that's something that you've already done, I want to encourage you to walk with the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. Be ready as a believer to meet Jesus by faithfully repenting of your sins and living a life that's consistent with your repentance. And finally, this morning, I want to say we also need to learn to speak bluntly like John did. Not in an unloving way. I'm not encouraging you to become a crank. What I am encouraging you to do is to have the courage to speak the truth. Some of you have children who are not walking with the Lord. Some of you have grandchildren who are not walking with the Lord. It is not love to be silent. To be very blunt, I believe it is sinful to be silent. The scripture describes that sin as the fear of man. When you see someone you love in sin, and rather than confronting them about it, you remain silent because you're afraid that they'll push you away. And I understand this is a real fear. If you see a son or a daughter in sin, and you talk to them about it, they might push you out of their lives. But it would be better for that to happen So that one day when you stand before Jesus, you say, I love my son. I love my daughter. I tried to tell them. I tried to warn them. And Jesus will say to you, you did the right thing. Recognize that being silent when you see a loved one in sin is itself a sin. And so Christians, I want to encourage you this morning. There comes a time for very loving, very careful speaking of the truth. And I think it would be appropriate as we end this message to pray and ask God to help us. Help us to be ready to meet Jesus face to face. And help us lovingly speak the truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I want to take a moment and confess as sin those times when you have moved me to speak, but I have instead been silent. I ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, I ask for your help in obedience. I pray that you would give me the courage to speak the truth. Give me the clarity to speak it with accuracy. And I pray this for our entire church, Lord. We all know people who are in danger of dying apart from Christ. Help us to hold out the good news of the gospel. Help us to hold up Jesus as the Savior. Lord, we trust that you will bless us as we seek to obey you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.